ARL has been around 75 years. We're celebrating our 75th anniversary this year. And one of the exciting things about that is looking back over the history of science and how things have evolved since 1948 till now about what we're studying and how we're studying it. But the one thing that hasn't changed is our mission and focus on the boundary layer. So I think many of us learned in school, there are different layers to the atmosphere. The layer where we live and breathe closest to the earth, it's called the boundary layer. And that's where we focused our research. So many other scientists are studying things that are happening in the farther out layers, all the way out until space. But we're interested in the air that we're breathing each and every day. You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join Michael Holtz and his guests for conversations about all things ORAU. They'll talk about ORAU storied history, our impact on an ever-changing world, our innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers, and our commitment to the communities where we do business. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Well, welcome to another episode of Further Together, the ORAU podcast. As ever, I'm your host, Michael Holtz, in the Communications and Marketing Department at ORAU. And I'm really excited today to be talking to Dr. LaToya Miles. She is the Deputy Director of the Air Resources Laboratory at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And um, the a lot of the work that ARL and the Climate Reference Network um, does through NOAA happens in Oak Ridge. ORU is involved in it. So we're going to talk about some of that and a lot more. But up first, I want to welcome you, Dr. Latoya Miles. Welcome to Further Together, the ORU podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, if I could just start with a little bit of an introduction. Who is Dr. Latoya Miles? How did you get to be where you are today? Absolutely. I am a wife and mother, scientist, and avid reader. And my background and my roots go all the way back to Mississippi. That's where my family is from. It's where I grew up. Uh, It's also where I attended undergrad at Alcorn State University and then graduate school at Florida A&M University and then moved directly here uh, to start work at Oak Ridge at um, ARL's Atmospheric Turbulence and Diffusion Division, and I've been here ever since. Awesome. Um, so I, I always like to ask my, my guests, especially those you know who are involved in the sciences, was science something that attracted you at an early age? Was that is science something you've always been interested in? Did it come to you in college? Was you know was there a light bulb moment, or was it sort of just always part of your life? It's always been part of my life. I've always been interested in the environment. I grew up in a rural area and so spent a lot of time outdoors as a kid and was always curious about the air and the water and the land and things like that. And so that curiosity kind of led me to be involved in science fairs as an elementary student and middle school student. And it just kind of grew from there. That's great. Um, So you're you're in Oak Ridge. You're the deputy director of the Air Resources Laboratory, the Atmospheric Turbulence and Diffusion Division. Talk about what does the ARL and ATDD, what do you all do there, basically? Absolutely. So I'm so proud of the Air Resources Laboratory. I came here and started my 
scientific career right out of graduate school, as I mentioned. And ARL has been around 75 years. We're celebrating our 75th anniversary this year. And one of the exciting things about that is looking back over the history of science and how things have evolved since 1948 till now about what we're studying and how we're studying it. But the one thing that hasn't changed is our mission and focus on the boundary layer. So I think many of us learned in school, there are different layers to the atmosphere. The layer where we live and breathe closest to the earth, it's called the boundary layer. And that's where we focused our research. So many other scientists are studying things that are happening in the farther out layers, all the way out into space. But we're interested in the air that we're breathing each and every day. And when I speak to students and speak to audiences, that's the one thing that I try to share with them is that our work is relevant because one of those things that you think about when you wake up in the morning is weather and movement of air. It's one of the first things you check, whether you're like me and still watch the newscast or you're checking it on your phone when you wake up. Right. Right. What's happening today? Is it raining? Is it going to be hot? How do I need to dress? All of those things, right? Correct. Uh, What's the air pollution levels? If you're someone Mm. who... Uh, is susceptible to things like pollen. You're checking that, particularly this time of year in the springtime. So how all of those different elements move in the atmosphere and where they end up is really the basis of the work that we do at ARL, not only here in Oak Ridge, but at our other three locations in Maryland, Idaho, and Nevada. Okay. Um, And I know one of the One of the aspects of the work that happens through the ARL is the Climate Reference Network, which is a network of stations across the country that monitor basically what's happening in the boundary layer, um, but at different points um, across the country. Talk about the importance of um, the Climate Reference Network and, and basically what kind of information does that give you and your team? The U.S. Climate Reference Network has been around for about 20 years, and it started in our laboratory. We understand that in order to study and research the atmosphere, we have to take measurements. And so a lot of the basis of our work is measurements and collecting data. The U.S. Climate Reference Network is a network that is completely run out of the Air Resources Laboratory in our division in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, from conceptualization to putting together the instruments, building the sites, deploying those sites across the nation, maintaining those sites on a regular basis. All of that work happens with a team of engineers and technicians and scientists out of Oak Ridge. One of the important things about the U.S. Climate Reference Network is we located those stations in remote areas. So you won't find a CRN station in an urban area or a city. You'll find them in remote areas. So grasslands, mountainous areas places where we can get a clear signal where it comes to air temperature, precipitation, uh, soil moisture, and all these other variables to help us understand long-term change. And that's kind of the basis of the Climate Reference Network is we don't want to just measure today or next week or next month. Mm -hmm. We want to understand all of these variables and how they're changing over decades. And is it does the Climate Reference Network, I guess, give you sort of a looking over time, the impact of climate change, like you can see what's happening as a result of um, the long-term impacts of what's happening with climate change. Absolutely. So it helps us understand how all of these variables are changing over time. 
and it helps us look at trends. So year to year, day to day, the weather changes, the weather patterns change, as we all know. But when you can step back and take a look at some of this data, particularly things like precipitation data in the Western U.S., and understand how some of these communities are being affected by drought, you need a long-term data set in order to be able to do that. And the U.S. Climate Reference Network is able to provide us with that. That's great. And I'm I'm going to ask you this question, not to be political, but, you know, there are skeptics out there. I mean, climate change is a real thing. I mean, we are seeing this happen, right? I mean, the climate is changing. Yeah, well, and that's one of the things that we try to share with the data that we're collecting is understanding what is changing, what parameters are changing. Is it air temperature? Is it precipitation? Uh, Is it wind speed, wind direction? And then how is it changing geographically? Because as we know, not all rate of change happens the same place in the same Mm. time. And so, you know, one of our studies that we're doing, not only with the U.S. Climate Reference Network, but with some of our other research, is trying to understand things like uh, intensity of storms and understand storm damage. I'm from the state of Mississippi originally, and you'll see recently we've had more tornadoes and severe storms in the southeastern U.S. And we have a group of researchers, including scientists and engineers, who are trying to understand why that's happening. Um, That's kind of that change that we're seeing that's on such a bigger, broader scale. We need long-term research to be able to understand why we're seeing more severe weather in places like the southeastern U.S. versus the midwestern U.S. Um, and the central U.S., where you know traditionally they've had more tornadoes, more severe weather, uh, but the impact it seems to be uh, affecting communities, unfortunately, with much more damage and much more loss of life in the southeastern U.S. and what's happening in the atmosphere that is creating conditions that are ripe for these kinds of large-scale storms. And how can we help understand and try to mitigate the damage that happens to people when we have those types of changes? That was going to be my next question, actually, regarding mitigation, like what your what your team is studying can help us determine, Okay, what can we do next to turn the ship around, so to speak, and and, um, reduce the possibility of those kinds of storms, that kind of damage? Absolutely. Uh, We work with partners at universities and some of the academic institutions, as well as our partners at ORU, to try to understand the broader scope of some of these problems. Our focus in ARL is on boundary layer research. But one of the things we understand is we have to have that element of understanding how communities respond to severe weather. And that's that social science piece that a lot of our partners are able to provide in collaboration with us so that we can ask these broader questions. The questions are not only about the intensity of the storms and the frequency of the storms, but when there are warnings and watches, how are communities reacting to those so that we can help hopefully save lives in the future? And in some cases, are we able to warn them fast enough? That's always the goal, the ultimate goal, uh, particularly within NOAA, not only within our Air Resources Laboratory, but across the agency, is we want to be able to improve warning time uh, so that individuals can have time to get to shelter, to get to safe places. And a lot of that work goes all the way back to making observations and improving some of the models that we're using when it comes to weather and climate 
in this country and around the world. So it sounds like there's a almost continuous process improvement of here's the data, this is what the data is telling us, here's what we can do a little bit differently. Um, yes. As you, as you continue to collect that data. Yes. And that's one of the things about partnerships and collaborations that I enjoy in my role as deputy director and a scientist is how can I support those programs that are collaborative and interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary. You know, science used to be many decades ago, kind of this solitary pursuit, a lone scientist in a laboratory or a lone scientist looking through a telescope. And now what we have is more of a collaborative team effort when it comes to science. And that's one of the the joys that I have in this role is being able to bring people together to answer some of these really large, important questions. And there's a, a, there's a role for academia, obviously. You've mentioned that a little bit. You were on a panel as part of ORAU's annual meeting last month, talking to academia, basically our university partnerships. What is, um, and again, you talked about this a little bit, but what is the role of academia in um, the work that NOAA is doing, but I guess just overall in science? I mean, I, I, I get... We're feeding the pipeline. Um, we're doing some, you know, great science, but also working together. Is it all of that and more? Absolutely. I think the role of academic institutions is really multifaceted. I think we have to have the education of the next generation of scientists, absolutely, because they're coming with fresh ideas and thoughts that help us improve our science. One of my roles as deputy director, even as a scientist, has always been to mentor students. Um, mm. You know, over the course of my career, I've mentored more than uh, 20 students from the high school level all the way up to the PhD level. And each time has been a rewarding experience because I found that students ask questions that we don't. Uh, they're thinking about things in a way that's different than previous generations. And so I think how we're training scientists through academic institutions is really important. I also think that academic institutions certainly have a role to play when it comes to advancing different scientific challenges, because so many times professors and scientists uh, at universities are making discoveries with their teams, with their students. Uh, and a lot of that work is funded by NOAA, uh, by other federal agencies. And so I think there's definitely a fruitful partnership between federal government and academia that helps us advance science in so many different directions. I love the idea of, and it makes sense, of, of younger people, younger scientists asking questions that folks who've been doing this for a while, you know, aren't asking. So there are always new avenues to explore, new questions to ask, new things to um, discover. and. When I talk to um, folks who participate in federal agency research at, you know, as postdocs, as undergrads, one of the things they universally talk about is resources that they have access to that if they were doing academic research, not that there's anything wrong with that, but there are resources available in federal labs in, in that they wouldn't be able to see wouldn't be able to be part of if they weren't working with 
vanillas and the you know DOEs and the other agencies. Talk a little bit about that, just in terms of the opportunities, I guess, that exist. I would say that's definitely the case. Personally, I started my career with NOAA as a graduate student in a fellowship program that was funded by the NOAA Office of Education. So I lived this firsthand. I started as a graduate student with an interest in science and an interest in environmental work and received this fellowship from NOAA. And immediately, one of my first steps in that fellowship was to go on a field experiment with NOAA scientists and engineers and technicians and start learning about the hands-on work that's conducted in order to collect the data that the agency needs to answer some of these larger questions. And being a part of that study, I realized that there are so many contributors and so many people who are bringing their expertise to the table to help us understand those questions, that as a student, I was really in awe of the expertise they had, the experiences they had had as a scientist, And that inspired me to continue to be a mentor. For the current students I'm mentoring now, I always tell them, bringing them in as a new student, there's two things I want you to do. One, I want you to get hands-on experience. Uh, And the second thing is I want you to contribute to a publication. Because Mm -hmm. as a student, being able to have your name on a scientific publication is just an outstanding feather in your cap as you're going on in your career to say that you've published science that's out there for anyone to read and anyone to interpret and help them think about some scientific question in a different way. So I always ask my students that is be committed to getting your hands dirty in a way and digging into the science, but then also being able to share that science uh, with the broader community. And knowing that you're gonna come out of an experience with your name Yes. On a paper is it's like gold in the scientific community, right? I Absolutely. Mean, and and so many students don't realize that because as a student I remember reading papers by others and reading publications sure. by others, but I never thought about how they came to be and how folks are included as co authors. So I encourage my students, even those that are not my personal mentees, is to think about when you're going into an internship at a scientific organization. Ask the question on the first day, how can I be involved in a publication of this work? You, you've mentioned that you've, you've had mentees. So you're the deputy director, but you're also a researcher. I mean, you are doing research. Talk a little bit about the work that you're specifically doing. The work that I've been involved with since graduate school has been trying to understand atmospheric deposition. And the way that I explain atmospheric deposition to most folks is, If you've ever been in a field or a parking lot and you see kind of the wind pick up some leaves and kind of there's this vortex where they're swirling around, many Mm. people call them like dust devils where it's picking up things that's going along. That to me is kind of the microcosm of what happens with atmospheric deposition. When we think about winds and how they move, a lot of times we think of winds as this kind of the straight line phenomenon moving north or south or east or west. But in those larger winds, they're kind of small circular motions called eddies. And those eddies are picking up atmospheric gases and particles, depositing atmospheric gases and particles as the winds move along. That's how you see as smoke moves, you know, out of a smokestack. It moves not just in a straight line, but it kind of disperses out. So my research has been trying to understand some of the dynamics that happen for different nitrogen species, particularly ammonia, the gaseous ammonia, 
is how it gets picked up as the winds move across maybe a farm or agriculture, and then where those gases end up ultimately being deposited. Uh, I focused on dry deposition, which is basically just the movement of those winds with different types of chemicals and gases in the atmosphere. But there's also wet deposition, which many decades ago used to be called acid rain. And so how do chemicals from the atmosphere move and get deposited in rain or in snow in different locations? And to do that, of course, we're taking measurements. We're collecting samples of air. We're collecting samples of rainwater and snow and then doing chemical analysis to understand exactly how much nitrogen or phosphorus or sulfur or any other species are located in those samples that we've collected. So um, in terms of focusing on your research, what does, I guess, what does the, that study tell you? What, what's the answer and or the question as the case may be? Sure. So the question we're trying to answer is, particularly when it comes to things like nitrogen, nitrogen can act as a fertilizer. It can help things mm -hmm. grow. So if you have nitrogen that gets picked up and travels through the atmosphere and lands somewhere else, for example, like uh, a coastal area or an area that's sensitive to having more nitrogen in it, you may see changes in plant growth or soil acidity or some of these other things that can be impacted by having an increased amount of nitrogen that wasn't expected in that particular ecosystem. So while we're collecting atmospheric measurements of these nitrogen species, ultimately they're ending up back on Earth's surface in our water bodies, our lakes, our soil. And so they can have that environmental impact there. And that's why we need to understand kind of some of those earlier steps about where these chemicals potentially have come from and where they can be deposited after they've traveled through the atmosphere. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. Um, you, you've talked about mentoring young people, young scientists. I have to imagine, Dr. Miles, you had mentors of your own. Talk about how those mentors fed fed you, fed your interest in becoming a scientist. Absolutely. I have always had support from teachers and professors from first grade on, but I have three individuals that really stepped in and their actions led to different steps in my career. Uh, so the first person was Dr. Troy Stewart from Alcorn State University. I was in a summer program that he had, it's now called the Lewis Stokes Alliance for Minority Participation. And during that summer program, I talked about the interest I had in science and what I wanted to do. Uh, and Dr. Stewart encouraged me to major in chemistry. I was interested in majoring in biology. <laughs> I thought I wanted to go to medical school at the time, but Dr. Stewart was adamant that the kinds of questions that I was interested in really aligned more with chemistry. And so his advice and his guidance led me to double majoring in chemistry and biology in undergrad. The next person is uh, Dr. Uh, Russell and Dr. Russell from Alcorn State University uh, was our chair of the chemistry department. When it was time for me to graduate uh, with my bachelor's degree, he was the one that encouraged me to think about graduate school. And in not only thinking about graduate school in different institutions where I could pursue a graduate degree, 
He said, I know someone who's at a graduate program at Florida A&M University, and I think it would be a great fit for you. He knew I had co-opted during my undergrad years and had worked and trying to understand things about what goes into the air and where it lands. And he said, I think this would be a great place for you. So Dr. Joseph Russell connected me with Dr. Larry Robinson, uh, who at the time was leading the Environmental Sciences Institute at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. And that's where I ended up for graduate school. And then under Dr. Robinson's um, mentorship, I was able to grow as a scientist to start doing field work and field experiments. And uh, he has been just a continuing mentor for me throughout my career because he also worked in Oak Ridge and was a scientist at Oak Ridge National Laboratory. So when it was time for me to come out of graduate school and start thinking about locations I wanted to be and where I wanted to be. Of course, he and his wife spoke so highly about Oak Ridge and the work that's going on there and just the ability to grow as a scientist in a nurturing community. And so here I am in Oak Ridge. And so I feel like I've come full circle uh, through those three mentors. And of course, my dad has always been just a supporter for me, always the person encouraging me to go and try new things and to mm -hmm. never be afraid to step out um, and be different and try something different. He was an educator. And so he always has been the kind of person that always asked questions, always wanted to find out answers. And so as well, he's been that kind of person that's been supportive of me as my career has grown. So I've had you know, several folks along the way that have just helped steer me in directions and helped uh, encourage me to look at different opportunities that I might not have considered previously. And so I just thank each one of those uh, individuals because I don't think I'd be sitting here as deputy director of the Air Resources Laboratory if not for their mentorship uh, and their support along the way. I love, I love hearing the stories of mentors and especially I love you talking about your dad, you know, pouring into you and ask, you know, encouraging you to ask questions and, and look at the world a little bit differently. And I think educator daddies kind of, <laughs> kind of are like that in general. My wife's dad was an educator. So, um, and he, he was very much like that. Um, not only with his kids, but but the kids that married into the family as well. So I have a, a great appreciation for parents who are educators. Um, without, <laughs> is stating the obvious, but Dr. Miles, you are a black woman leader in science. Um, there aren't a lot of black female leaders in science, um, but I know those numbers are are growing slowly but surely. How important is it to, um, and I know you talked a little bit about this at the annual meeting, but outreach to, to historically black colleges and universities and expanding the diversity so that the, the folks doing science look like the rest of the country. I think that's so critical because for some of the scientific questions we're asking, I think that could be well informed by having a diverse set of voices at the table when we're discussing some of the science. And I certainly think as a, a product of two different historically black colleges and universities, I can appreciate the fact that there's outstanding science happening at not only kind of R1 more popular institutions, 
but also at HBCUs, at tribal colleges and universities, at Hispanic serving institutions and other MSIs around the country. And I think we need to tap into that more, um, particularly in some of the questions that uh, when it comes to weather and climate that are really affecting communities where some of these institutions are located. And so they also need a seat at the table and a voice when we're discussing how do we plan experiments? Like how do mm -hmm. we decide where to deploy instrumentation? Uh, because they may have ideas that can help improve kind of the approach that we're taking to answer some of these questions. So it's really important that those voices be at the table. Um, and I know that's an important notion for ORU as well as, as you know, Dr. Desmond Stubbs and, and really a, a lot of the folks in our research and university partnerships office are focused on well, that outreach. Was, you, know. you know, something that I appreciate about the ORU annual meeting is that yeah. walking into that room, uh, there was so much diversity with different mm -hmm. types of academic institutions roles of individuals at those academic institutions, as well as diversity of ethnicity and background and lived experience that I really appreciated at the ORU annual meeting. And so I also see that, you know, being able to come together and talk about these types of questions, talk about the science, but also how does that connect to things like environmental justice in communities mm -hmm. around the country I think that's really important. And that's another role where our academic partners can come and provide us with information and perhaps perspectives that we haven't considered before uh, when it comes to some of these topics. That's a, a great point. And I, I love that you noticed the, the diversity in the room, because I, I think, you know, as I was saying, it's an important concept for us to um, bring diversity of thought, bring diversity of ideas, but also diversity of individuals to the table to be talking about these really important issues. So um, I'm, I'm glad on behalf of ORU, I'm glad that was <laughs> that was noticeable because um, I know it's important to us as well. Um, Dr. Miles, last question for you. What brings you joy? Oh, my family. First off, absolutely. My husband, we have two teenagers now, and just spending time with my family, talking with them, seeing them grow, my kids grow and learn, brings me absolute joy. Um, and thinking about the opportunities they can have in the future. I think that so many of the jobs or the topics that we think students should study haven't even been thought of yet. And to me, that's just mind blowing to think that my kids could be involved in something that is driven by technology that hasn't even been thought of. And so I think that brings me joy to think about the future uh, and the future for all of the next generation. I also find joy in things like being outdoors, <laughs> which probably mm -hmm. isn't surprising, being in the <laughs> environment and just being able to witness just the beauty of the natural environment in so many different places around the country. Um, and then, of course, reading. I mentioned that earlier. I'm, I'm an avid reader. I love reading. I love all types of books. And books, to me, take me to a different environment in my mind. And so being able to read and enjoy a great book outdoors with my family is probably one of the best times for me. Awesome. Well, okay, I lied. I have another question. Yes. Um, 
because I'm an avid reader myself. So what are you reading now that um, that you're loving? So right now I am actually reading Spare, Prince Harry's uh, mm -hmm. book. I have been on the wait list for it forever at the library <laughs> and was so excited when it popped up on my reader yesterday. Um, and to me, I've never been kind of a royal watcher like that, but just reading his perspective as a person and particularly his memories as a child of growing up with this constant spotlight, the constant attention yeah. has really been interesting um, because I just had not thought of how as a young person that can affect you and affect how you live your life. Because as most you know, kids and teenagers, we just go about our daily lives and we play and we go to school and we enjoy. And, but having to do that under such an extreme spotlight, it's been really an interesting read for me. Yeah, I've I read that book myself, and I, I found the same thing. I found myself going, I couldn't do that. I couldn't. <laughs> I felt the same way. I thought, what a strong individual to be able to withstand that and then come out on the other side with joy and with happiness. Absolutely. And to walk away from it and just say, you know what? <laughs> That's enough. Right. right. I, I'm taking steps to preserve myself. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then just as a follow up, is there an outdoor place that you, I mean, I know we're in Oak Ridge. It's gorgeous. <laughs> right. We've got the Smoky Mountains. Is there an outdoor place that you love more than others? There's so many, but I would say in Oak Ridge, uh, because it's right down the street from my office is the UT Arboretum. Mm. I love taking my kids out there and just kind of doing like a quick walk through some of their trails. And it's beautiful in the fall and it's beautiful in the spring and summer. So there's really not a time out there that you can't see, you know, beautiful plants and flowers and wildlife. And I think it's such an asset to the Oak Ridge community to have the Arboretum there. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Dr. Latoya Miles, thank you so much for spending this time with me and sharing a little bit about who you are and the work of NOAA and the ATDD and the Climate Reference Network and all of the things that we've talked about today. I really appreciate your time. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at ORAU and on Instagram at ORAU Together. If you like Further Together, the ORAU podcast, we would appreciate you giving us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your reviews will help more people find the podcast. <laughs>